iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Antonio Banderas and moderator Stu Van Aresdale. How's everyone? Thank you very much for coming out tonight. And thank you, Mr. Banderas. No, please have a seat. Can you give us a little bit of background about the skin I live in? Well, just to start talking about the movie, I should just uh, tell the people how it came to me. In the Cannes uh, Film Festival of 2002, Pedro Almodovar approached me, and he, he told me that he bought the rights for the novel of Thierry Jonquer, uh, Tarantula, it was the original name, and that he wanted to make a movie about it. You know? and, uh, and I thought that the process was going actually to be a little bit faster than it was because it took him 10 years to reflect about the movie, but it's, it's normal because knowing Almodovar, I'm, you know, I worked with him five movies in the 80s and we've been, you remain friends during these 21 years that we didn't work together actually. I, I know that he always have several projects in his hands and I knew that uh, the possibility for this one just to be the first one to shoot uh, was unlikely. But finally, I was here in New York two years ago. I was doing a workshop uh, for Zorba, uh, the Greek, which I hope that someday happens. Um, I would love to go back to Broadway. Um, he called me. I was in the car. I just saw Pedro Almodovar. Woo. I answered the phone. I, he just not, didn't even say hello. He says, it's about time. <laughs> and uh, so a couple of days after I received the script, I read it. And knowing the story that he told me already in Cannes, it surprised me the narrative processes that he used to tell the story. Um, it was uh, non-lineal. It was just actually um, presenting the first part of the movie as a um, question, and then um, solving all those questions, coming with disturbing answers in the second half of the movie. It's almost like a roller coaster in which you just get on your seat and it goes up, clack, 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 very slowly you're getting higher and higher and higher and there is a moment in the movie in which you just release the cart and you just go all the way down twisting and you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a shocking movie. So we're, you said, it, it sounded like you said you were a little bit surprised about some of the, the changes he made to the source material. Um, what kind of conversations did you have with him knowing, I mean, having had a relationship, a, a great working rela relationship with him over the years and but also being kind of a story and, and knowing that he has so he's such a visionary, right. but also trying to kind of, you want to put your own stamp on it. I mean, do you even have that, that privilege when you work with a guy like Amadova, or do you just kind of just let him take over and you just, whatever he says goes? With Pedro, you have always to take a leap of faith. That's the reality of it. Um, he doesn't like for you to come to the rehearsal time that we initiated actually a couple of months before principal photography in Madrid. Um, you know, the normal tendency for you is just to put over the table, of rehearsal table, everything that you have been actually accumulating during your years as, a, as an actor, as a professional, um, your experiences, your tricks, mm -hmm. everything. Uh, he takes all of those things, he makes a big pile with it and throw it out of the window. <laughs> so you have to really, with Almodovar, always start from zero. If he's going to reinvent himself, he's asking you today to do the same thing. So he said to me, none of the things that you have done uh, during this year that we didn't see each other, but none of the things 
that we used to work with, the elements and the tools that we use in the 80s are, uh, you know, of any, um, they're not valid right now. We have to start differently. So from there, we start just actually um, rehearsing. And in rehearsals with Almodovar, it's not only him correcting you, you feel that he's rehearsing at the same time. It's a, a, the script at that particular time in, t uh, in, the, in the process is just uh, an excuse, it's just uh, something alive, very flexible, that um, uh, you know, he may modify as you go with it. And then description of the characters, it was very um, precise, you know, with, uh, what he wanted. Uh, for an actor, when, when you see a character that on paper is a little bit bigger than life, and this one was not a little bit bigger. It was way bigger than life. You, the normal tendency is actually just to go there. Uh, but actually, he wanted to go in the opposite direction. He wanted to make the character very cold, very um, calculated, um, very minimalist in a way, economical, and contained in himself. Never, ever revealing you know, his real, true nature not winking of an eye to the audience, not commenting the, the character on top of the narrative. He wanted the character to be very, very laid back. And that was actually the most difficult part because it's a character that actually is ask, asking you to do exactly the opposite. So it was pretty much about containing your horses as an actor, um, what we did in that first part of the, of the process. Got it. Well, so um, maybe you can give us a little bit of background about uh, these characters and the overall story. It's difficult, it's very, very difficult, and we had that difficulty too when um, they were putting together the trailers. Why? Because the movie holds uh, secrets, and some of them are very strong. And if we reveal them, and I suppose some of you probably saw the movie these days at the festival, but there are some other people that maybe didn't see it, and I don't want to spoil it for them. Um, but there is a probably one of the biggest U-turns that you have seen in, in a motion picture. And, um, and so it was difficult just to put together the trailers, trying to sell uh, the story to people without actually revealing what is really happening. But basically, I play a um, plastic surgeon, doctor, supposedly to be an eminent, uh, very experimented guy, brilliant in his work, uh, who is actually... Um, producing and, uh, an experiment uh, with this young lady, Elena Anaya, that we saw on the screen. Um, and the experiment is horrendous, and it's about uh, identity. It's, the movie reflects pretty much about that, reflects, reflects very much about power, and reflects very much about creation in a way. There is floating during the whole entire movie, besides the approach that Pedro had to it as a genre movie, a horror movie, a thriller, but there is something floating, metaphorical, that is reflecting under my point of view uh, about creation. When, I w when we were in the Cannes Film Festival, Pedro said something on the press conference that was very revealing to me. He said, that directing a movie in, in a way, in a certain way, is almost like becoming um, God. Because you can create your own universe, you can uh, create identities, you can create the rhythm and the space in which they are going to move. And it's, in, in the case of Pedro Almodovar, that is very uh, clear. Uh, this is a guy who got a very strong personality. 
um, he has been absolutely faithful to that personality for many years. He just defies the laws of cinematic gravity, uh, jumps over the boundaries of narrative, and he just takes movies to a place that is very similar to the world in which we live, but it's not totally like it. It's slightly um, off. So when he was saying that, when you direct a movie, you become God, in a way, he was just winking an eye to all the press that was there at the press conference to what the movie is all about. You know, at the end, my character is playing something a little bit beyond being a plastic surgeon. He's playing to be a little bit of a God himself. And for that reason, you know, um, he's producing, um, experimenting with this young lady in something that I cannot actually um, reveal. It's interesting, though, because this film deals with contemporary issues and contemporary themes in a way that a lot, you know, many of Almodovar's recent films have not. Like Volver is more just kind of a, it's just, it's a fantasia almost, you know, Broken Embraces is the same way. But this is a little more specific. And I guess, how did you and him work together to kind of, you know, evoke con these contemporary themes and really drive them home in a way that, that do speak to the audience? Basically, for me, probably was easier than for him because he was obviously taking a leap to another territory, but because I didn't work with him for the last 21 years, you know, I was just stepping to rediscover this new Almodovar that is definitely, um, you know, in the, in the form, is more minimalist, more economical, and more austere, if you will, and then in, in the content of what he's telling is more complex, more profound, more serious. Um, so that was the first thing that jumped to me, you know, uh, from him as an artist. Uh, um, but we uh, approached the, the, the work as we always did, like, like something absolutely new, you know, just uh, having the uh, courage to start uh, walking in, in a territory that sometimes is uh, uh, painful, always exciting, and that is the territory of creation from nothing. Uh, because Almodovar, even though he actually made references and, and uh, comments a lot about different styles, in the history of motion picture, literally, I mean, many people have seen the movie, they talk about Alfred Hitchcock, or they talk about um, uh, Fritz Lang, or they talk, under my point of view, more close to Luis Buñuel, basically because of the atmospheres that he creates. It reminds me very much of the atmospheres of a movie that the Spanish director Luis Buñuel um, uh, did called Viridiana. Um, uh, Still, Almodovar in, in a, is a genre in himself. Now, during the process of the movie, I realized that actually, though he was just taking this leap and knowing him personally, and this is something that probably I am the, the only one of the people who are very close to him can perceive, he was being more Almodovar than Almodovar. He was okay. trying to squeeze himself and just bring you know, that, that side of himself that is a little bit darker than the rest of the movies that we have seen with him. I personally, I love that Almodovar, and I love that Almodovar at this particular time in my life. I love the Almodovar that really gets in the mud and gets dirty and try to create um, a monster <laughs> like the one that he did in, in this uh, complicated, unbelievable, fascinating artifact that is uh, the skin I live in, you know? Let's watch one more clip. Um, we're gonna get to questions in just a bit.
it's short, but it's short, but it's symptomatic. It, it, it tells you pretty much of what I am talking about. What you saw there probably is deceiving for you now because probably you don't know the space in which that was taking place. That is my bedroom. And I am not, I, I have somebody actually trapped. She's a, a prisoner, okay? And she's in another room and I observe her in an act of voyeurism, if you will, surveillance from my own bedroom. But look what Pedro Almodovar did. He didn't put a normal little TV monitor, which could have been probably enough. No, he makes the whole entire wall to be a TV. It's not in reality a TV. I think it's a movie screen. And actually, he photographed me from the back. I am Pedro Almodovar inside a movie of Pedro Almodovar observing my masterpiece and taking her to a close-up, bringing her very, very large on the screen. And eventually, what he does is he goes to the room where she is and becomes kind of an actor of his own movie. That's what I meant, what I was trying to, to tell you, that floating over the whole entire story of horror and, and you know, thriller, uh, there is this kind of metaphor about creation and about creation in movies. That's what he's pursuing with his movie. And when you're in scenes like this, I mean, it's been 22 years since you guys worked together. When you're in scenes like this and other scenes in the film, how exhilarating, how exhilarating was it for you on the set to be back in that element with Pedro Almodovar creating again? It was very difficult. It was very tough. Almodovar is very demanding and at the same time is unbelievably precise in the things, in the indications that he gives you. Um, once the characters are determined, and he wanted for me to be very contained and very natural in my acting, no matter, no matter the monster that I am playing, for two reasons. The first reason has to do with the narrative process of the movie. He wanted for me, for my character, to be limitless, with no parameters. So you cannot hold him. You cannot see where he finishes. So it becomes absolutely unpredictable. It's almost a, a wide screen in which you can actually, you referring the, the audience, can paint the, the, the most dark nightmares. They, they can put the, you know, the words of what they can imagine about this character. That in one hand. In the other hand has to do with the character himself and the psychopathy that, uh, you know, he, he's a psychopath. Why? I remember when we were preparing the movie and we were in the, in the time of rehearsals, uh, it just happened, uh, that case that probably many of you may remember of this guy in Austria who kept his daughter for 21 years in the basement of his house and has six kids with her, which is a story that it, actually if you invent for a movie, nobody would believe it, but it happened. But the interesting thing was not that. We know that there are horrible people in the world. The interesting thing is when journalists approach uh, people who were surrounding this, this guy and, you know, neighbors and people who were in contact with him, they describe him as a wonderful man. Uh, you know, uh, a guy who may go to church on Sundays, uh, charming, elegant, uh, well-mannered, polite, educated. These characters, Almodovar said to me, melt 
perfectly in the society that we live. They are literally undetectable. And sometimes, you know, and I, and I, I was probably was going to, to make the mistake while I was portraying him. You, you have the feeling that you need to wink an eye to the audience always with that. Um, there are some magnificent jobs made in, in serial killers. One of them was portrayed by a dear friend of mine, unbelievable actor, Anthony Hopkins, in The Silence of the Lambs. But I remember that he was allowed to have this tweak, you know, this kind of wink of an eye. I remember, for example, Jodie Foster approaching um, in some of the interviews that she got with him when he was in jail. And the guy did this strange thing with his mouth. I don't know if you remember this kind of these little details that you have that you say, ooh, wacko, <laughs> wacko. You know, he's in a way just, uh, just uh, putting a line under the character that says, that's what I am. Almodovar never allowed me to go that way. The character has to perform like that. So um, uh, very, very, very natural. So what I did for acting the character is I, I, I couldn't judge him in terms of morality. It was, I discovered at the beginning of the shooting there was too much of a burden over, over my shoulder. So what I did is just to make him in compartments. Yeah. Uh, things that I was, I was doing almost like pieces of a puzzle that I didn't have to put together. I cannot play as an actor the whole narrative of the movie. I, I gotta give my director, and in the case of Pedro Almodovar very especially, the best material I can give him so he can put it together later. So I, in my mind, I trick myself. I trick myself to the point of thinking that I was playing kind of a family doctor. Somebody who is totally detached with the story that we were telling to the audience. Now, the result at the end is going to be there. I cannot escape that. Because there is always Pedro Almodovar putting the whole entire thing together and the things that he's doing or not doing are going to be there regardless of what I do. So I play from that point of view with almost um, um, with detachment from him. Because at, at the same time, Pedro Almodovar makes you play in a micro world, in, in very little details uh, that no other director would put attention to. He does, uh, especially when you are working uh, very close to camera and close-ups and stuff like that. Unperceptible things. It's almost like the quantum physics of acting <laughs> with him, you know? And so we created the character basically like that. Uh, something is done to my daughter, and I am going to revenge that with that guy who was there. Um, but what is revenge? Talking about my daughter, if somebody does to my daughter some damage, in the heat of the moment, I may react violently. I have to recognize that, right? But in the heat of the moment, I don't know if I am capable to do that in cold blood. And I don't know if I methodically can punish a person for six years as this character that I play does. Uh, that for me is not revenge. It's something different. It's just to start walking in a very dark path. And it's something that actually you are holding inside you for a long time that actually this thing that happens in this scene is going to trigger, but it was in you already. So that's why we describe the character actually as a psychopath, because when you see the movie, you would understand that it's going beyond um, uh, revenge.
Uh, also, uh, many of the people that has been um, already seen the movie, not only in the United States, uh, we, we presented the movie in Cannes, in France, in Italy, in Spain, you know, many different places all around the world, and they all come to the same conclusion that there is certain parallel lines between Pedro Almodóvar and, and Hitchcock. And one of those parallel lines that they uh, find is actually um, the love for, for object and how it, the, the objects actually become kind of alive in, in his movies. One of the experiments that I am doing with this lady is, it has to do with skin. <clears throat> in this movie, uh, in, I mean in this clip, I mean, before she actually peels her own skin, uh, metaphorically, you know, the reaction is just to break all this clothing that she got, almost like a second skin, and tearing all, all of them apart and just sucking all of these things with this kind of mechanical instrument that actually belongs to this mansion where they live, you know, which is very surgical, cold, and it's almost like the whole entire thing is almost like being cut by a scalpel, you know. Uh, so that's what the clip represents. Got it. Uh, I heard the president is coming to your house soon. You're going to have to do some vacuuming yourself. I, that was just, just, uh... I promise I wouldn't do anything bad to the president and uh, <laughs> I will treat him like a king in my house. How did that come about? Well, I, I, I've been supportive of him in other times and uh, so um, apparently uh, through Eva Longoria and some of the parts of the Spanish community in Hollywood, um, we want to hear some explanations from Mr. Obama about the Spanish community and the relationship of the American administration with this community. And so I, I am more than happy just to give my house uh, for him to talk to, to my community and to express himself. Fantastic. Good luck with that. That's at the end of the month, I believe. Um, we are going to go for questions now. Uh, there are microphones. You'll be first. And we've got here. Um, go ahead. Okay. First on the right side. Hi, Antonio. Uh, I noticed you were the voice of Puss in Boats. How is he developed as a character? What's the new movie going to be like? And what was your experience like working on the Shrek sequels, especially with animation? We're going from skin to fur. <laughs> in just one shot. Um, well, yes. Puss, who, who has been always a secondary actor, became uh, eventually a star in this new movie. Um, the process of making a movie like that is not as simple as the people may think. Actually, you don't dab the character, you don't make a looping and you put the voice already in an animation that has been already done. No, it doesn't go like that. The first process that we as actors live you know, through is they send you a, what is not a still script, it's close to a script, but it's still open, okay? So they take us sometimes to San Jose, in California to Silicon Valley, where the center uh, of the uh, studios uh, DreamWorks is, with all the animators and creative people. And then you talk to them. You sit down, as I am with you over here, in a chair, and you read the script together. And so they are making you questions, you know, the creative people, the different departments, making you questions as an actor about your character. So you give them the information that they need. You know, that's what I, my character, I think, should do at this particular moment, or here or there, or I think this line would be funnier. You know, you just go over the whole entire thing. So they take that material, they go away. A Couple of months after, you receive the real script, which, we, which one you are gonna start working. And then you go to the studio for the first time and you record only a couple of scenes. 
okay? And you do it with no references. You have no drawings in front of you. You are totally free to do whatever you want with it. You know, it's a director, of course, that is going to give you indications, but after they record the lines, you can improvise, you can do whatever you want. They have three cameras sometimes in front of you when you do that. When you're recording the character, you got a little camera over here and two lateral cameras. Sometimes they provide you with some of the elements of the character. I may ask sometimes to have my hat with the yellow <laughs> feather and a plastic sword. So you are playing your character and you're doing your thing. Then they take the material and all the voice that is recorded and it goes to the creative people and the cartoonists. And so they try to imitate your nuances, the little details that you're giving them. Hand motion, things that you may do with your face, stuff like that, right? And then you go for almost two years process doing that. When the movie is ready, it opens to audience. But before we do that, I do. That's how I, I insert or no, I insert. I give my voice to the character. But then I I do more than that because I do the character in Spanish, and then it's dubbing. Then they take the voice. English voice away, and so with the character voiceless, you just put your Spanish voice on him into different versions. One for Latin America, one in Castilian for the Spanish market. And then also, I do another version in Italian for the Italian market. French, I didn't get it yet. <laughs> but I'm working on it. Great. Great. Uh, Next question on the left-hand side. If you have to describe with one word this movie, what word will be? Uh, I haven't surviving. seen the movie yet. <laughs> survival, survival. That would be the um, identity. Oh, surviving your identity. <laughs> um, can we just get this gentleman here? Oh, we'll come back to you. Hello. Uh, of all the parts you've played, which part have you found most satisfying? It's very difficult. I think a movie serves many different purposes. Uh, from those light comedies that, you know, uh, that I have done in my life, to movies that actually reflect about the complexity of the human soul, like this one. And all of them are valid if they are done with honesty and they are done with dignity. Um, Characters that, I, I don't know, I love all of them, even those ones that were a miss, those movies that never got anywhere. I love them too. They're my kids. They are mine. You know, the other day somebody asked me to describe not only a movie, but to describe what is my favorite sequence in the history of motion picture. <laughs> That's quite a question, because I cannot probably tell you. But then it came to my mind actually a sequence that I really love. And it has to do with the answer that I'm going to give you. Um, there is a sequence in a movie made by Federico Fellini called Eight and a Half. Actually, he played that character here on Broadway in a, in a play, in a musical called Nine. It was just coming out of the movie. Well, at the end of the movie, there is a moment that they open a curtain and all the characters that were playing in the movie, they come down the stairs with beautiful music by Nino Rota, and they go in a circus that almost represents life. 
and they go around the circle, this, this circus, all holding hands in a big, big circle, you know, singing and dancing the music by Nino Rota. Well, sometimes that's how I see all my characters. I see Zorro holding hands with Robert Lerger, the guy in Desperado with the Almodovar characters that I did at the beginning, the cat maybe somewhere there in the middle, all of them going around the circus. This is the story of my life. I love all of them. Um. I want to get someone on this side. Uh, can we, uh, the gentleman in the back, the red? Just hold, wait for the microphones coming to you. Thanks. I read a review that compared this film to uh, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, you know, having a deranged surgeon, and I was wondering if you saw that parallel. No, I didn't. I didn't. But, you know, it's very interesting because since we presented the movie in Cannes, Actually, the movie has been compared to so many things, <laughs> you know, I mean, and myself, I said it, you know, I just said it, Luis Buñuel, Hitchcock, Fritz Lamb, um, there is a number of directors that actually touch this issue. Frankenstein is, is one of the other movies that has been mentioned all the time, you know, um, comparing to this movie. At the end, Pedro is an eclectic director that actually recognized something that we should all recognize it's very difficult to, to do something new. In a way, you are going on a ladder, and those steps were put by people before you. So somehow you are going to look alike somebody. And, and that is a natural thing. But at the end, also, with all of those styles and all of those references, I think Pedro is very personal. Um, in a way, eclecticism could be actually his personality, but I think, it, as I said at the beginning, I think Pedro is a genre on himself. This uh, gentleman right here on the corner, the end. I just want to say I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, my question is, in, in Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, how much of the stunts were actually you? Uh, and, I, and that was amazing, the way you just popped out the guns in that one scene. <laughs> Uh, that had to feel amazing. What was it like delivering those lines? You know, because they're such amazing ri writers. The, the lines are, yeah. That's you know, um, <laughs> in Desperado, um, I tried to portray the, um, an action hero, but tried to give him something different. I tried to, to, for him to look like a kind of a bullfighter or a flamenco dancer, <laughs> to make him more flexible, know so much. <clears throat> Boom! No, no, just trying to give him something that has to do with choreography, only with dancing. Um, now, how much I did? A lot. And I'm going to tell you why. Because at the time, that movie was done with $4 million. That for a movie of action, there is very little money. And so we didn't have uh, so many stunts. And definitely I didn't have any stunt for myself. I remember arriving one night at a little house that I rented there in Del Rio, Texas, where we shot the movie. And my elbows were like this. I had to go to the hospital, and they were just taking out a liquid out of my elbows for like an hour. Um, so I, I got a lot of those. Practically every day I was in the hospital. And, uh, and even in the second one, Robert Rodriguez, he always called me, he said, because you, you can do your own stuntman, so we don't have to do, substitute you. But in the, first one, in the first one, actually, I killed one guy. 
one stand that we p could pay, I killed him like 10 times. The guy got glasses, a hat, with a beard, he was blonde, he was fat. I mean, we put everything on him that we got there on the, on the, and we kill him all the time, you know? And so, uh, you know, that's how much money we got, we got in that movie. In the second part, it was very funny. I remember a scene that Salma and I, we are escaping out of a building. And uh, so they brought a crane from that town. I mean, now that I think about it, I think I was, I was totally nuts to do that. But uh, it was a crane, a normal crane for, you know, constructions. And so they just, uh, from two wires that were coming from the top of the crane, we got a harness inside our, our body, so we have a clip over here. But it was really, really thin, that thing, you know? And we were both hanging there, like 30 meters from the ground, and just, you know, sliding from one side to the other of this place for hours. And I remember at the end, Salma Hayek um, screaming and saying, I am not a piñata! <laughs> Somebody take me out of here! <laughs> it was fun. She's very courageous, actually. All right, guys, we have time for two more questions. Hey, ladies, let's, uh, this uh, lovely lady right here. Yes, yes, yeah. Make sure the microphone's coming to you. Oh, wonderful. Hi. Um, I saw the movie um, in Cannes. And I just, it, what a journey. And your work was just amazing in it. And it was really, I walked out of there, I was like, this is one, this is gonna win. I, I really thought it would, because it just, it was one of my favorite, favorite movies. Um, and I'm, so I'm wondering, what was your, like, what, what's, a, what's your favorite story from the movie? Oof. It was tough, you know. It was as difficult to get in as to get out. Um, it was a, approximately a month ago. <laughs> it was, this is not a story about me being in the movie, but it, it has to do with the movie. Uh, we were in Toronto, in the film festival in Toronto. And uh, my wife came there, and she saw the movie for the first time. She was very impressed. And uh, so... <laughs> So after the movie, we went to a, a, a cocktail, you know, that the um, festival was given to actors. And so we were there. I, I just saw my wife react, reacting weird to me. You know, she was like, I, I didn't know exactly how to describe it, but it just was something was off. We went back to the hotel. And suddenly she said to me, when we got in the room, she said to me, Remembering the movie, says, now I understand why you are behaving this way the last three months of our life together. <laughs> I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'm not the monster. But it tells you that actually sometimes it's not that easy to get out of a character. There is something that remains in you. That doesn't, pro I mean, doesn't have to do actually with the things that you operate in the movie on what, how psychopath you are. But there are remains. There are things that are still in the skin I live in. <laughs> oh, more question. <laughs> Thank you. I wanna, you just, um, actually, I wanna go all the way to the back. All the way to the back. I read that uh, there's another movie that's coming up, uh, Black Gold, that you're playing in. That's why I'm so glad I'm seeing you now, about uh, the Arab world. And uh, can you tell us, is, is it coming out uh, in November in New York City? No, it's coming, it's coming out in November in Europe. I don't know when the movie is going to make it here. That is a movie, it's, a, it's a, a little parable in a way, a little fairy tale 
way of telling the story of the creation of um, countries in the um, Gulf, you know, uh, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, though we don't make any special reference to a country specifically. Um, that movie was directed by Jean-Jacques Anou, he's a French director. Um, actually, we were shooting in Tunisia right when the revolution started in Tunisia. And uh, so we were working in the middle of a revolution, which uh, was uh, as dangerous as emotional, too. F uh, seeing people fighting for their freedom, half of the crew left um, because they were scared, actually, of the situation that we were living there. And, and at that time, we, we didn't suspect that it was going to go uh, that wide and that big as, he, as it is still. You know, the problems in Syria are very open. The problems in Libya and e in Egypt, uh, um, the situation is still very, very um, uneasy. And uh, so uh, we were there witnessing that. Um, uh, it's interesting because it's a movie that reflects actually about the two conception of how to take what happened to Arabs in uh, the beginning of the last century. You know, how to deal with black gold, with oil. And there are two different visions of doing so. One of them is um, very fundamentalist and they don't want to use the oil, they want to continue living in their traditional lives. And the other one is a man that is more practical and he want to just actually um, uh, use oil to get money and to fulfill the dreams of his own people. So is these two uh, characters, these two worlds confronting each other with the son of one of them in the middle, which in a way represents the best of both worlds. One more quick thing. What is, what is happening with your next directorial project? Uh, I was reported to be solo. Is that correct? And I guess what's the process, or, where does that stand? Well, the situation, the economical situation is affecting everybody. Um, I got an agreement that was announced in the Cannes Film Festival also uh, with a French company last year called Quinta and, uh, and I'm uh, intending to make movies with them. The first movie that we are going to do is a movie that we are going to produce, it's called, called, it's called Automata. It touches the areas of uh, science fiction but it still is an auteur movie uh, from Europe with an Spanish director, uh, Gabe Ibáñez, and I will act, um, I will start the movie too. And then by the end of 2012, if uh, we can get the finances together, um, uh, I will do uh, my, uh, you know, I will go behind the camera for the third time. It's a movie for the first time that is an original idea. It's called uh, Solo. Uh, the script was written actually by a very good friend of mine. He's a, a scriptwriter from San Francisco uh, by the name of Eric Jendrensen. You probably know him because he wrote a TV series that, that has been very famous called Band of Brothers. Um, so uh, it's the story of a lieutenant colonel of the Spanish army who came back to Spain from Afghanistan after a very uh, strong traumatic experience. And he's going to experiment something that can be cataloged as a science fiction too. You know, situation. But it's basically a philosophical reflection about solitude, uh, violence, and war. Well, good luck with that. Thank Look you. Look forward to seeing it down the line. Thank you all very much. Coming Skinhead Living opens tomorrow in New York City, so check it out. Mr. Manders, thank you. Thank you.